So I guess the takeaway is be on the front end, get your trademarks right. and be the enforcer, not the enforcer. Right. If you're starting a new brewery, do your due diligence and get your trademarks exactly. first. Because I think some of that process bakes in reviewing and making sure you're not using anybody else's mark and you're not going to get that letter and spend all that money to change your brand. We, we had a, so, uh, a local restaurant that for a brief time, they wanted us to, to do a private label for their restaurant. And I won't say which restaurant, um, great, great place, great guys, but um, they had a concept and they wanted to call it something loco for Loudoun County. Uh -huh. And it's like, you know, for loco is a, is a beverage, right? Like, right. like, no, you can't use uh. loco. And, and I think that basically killed it for me. They were really intent on calling this product like loco something. And I was like, well, we, you know, we're going to have to own it. We're going to have to trademark it. And, and you're going to never going to, that's letter. never going to yeah. happen. Right. It's, I mean, we were going to put out a product called Grey Ghost at one time, right? And that's right. too close to Grey Goose, right? Grey Ghost is the nickname for John Mosby. And, yeah. But, but it's, it's too close. It's, it's too close. Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. And I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. I'm your host for Black Letter, Tom Dunlap. Today with me, I've got Scott Harris of Catoctin Creek Distilling and Chris Suarez of Bear Chase Brewing. Briefly about Scott. So Scott was an engineer, a defense contractor, IT software engineer. He and his wife both, and they gave up that life for something that they found more fun. And I think on this podcast, you've heard from some of our defense contracting people before, but today we're going to hear from what happens in life after that. And then Chris grew up in the hospitality industry and became the general manager of Bear Chase Brewing. Really neat today. We're going to talk about the challenges in starting a alcohol-focused business, everything from ABC licenses to trademark wars to just what happens in startup on the business side of things, the challenges and the kind of the fun part of it as well. Uh, and we may have partway through the podcast, Matt Hagerman from Lost Rhino join us where Chris used to work. Um, so, uh, and Chris uh, mentioned also was a home brewer before he became the general manager at Bear Chase and used to work for Matt at Lost Rhino. Matt right now is either very short or invisible, but uh, he did text and will join us in the podcast in a little bit. So with that, uh, Scott, why don't we start with you? Uh, so your distillery, Catoctin Creek, and I think you brought some sample bottles. Yep. Uh, if we had some shot glasses, maybe Show we, can, some of those. we should sample that. Um, so tell us a little bit about Catoctin Creek. And you started a long time ago. I know Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig helped you with the money and the trademarks That's and right. some of that stuff. But, but tell us about uh, Catoctin Creek right now. What do you guys yeah, do? So we, um, we are 10 years in. So we started in 2009 now. Um, and we uh, have kind of grown organically since we've done that. Um, we started out just selling in the Virginia ABC system. Virginia is a control state, so it means the state government controls all liquor. Uh, sales and distribution. So we started out selling there and, and then grew into the DMV area, DC, Maryland, 
Um, and today we are in 26 states and wow. we are selling in about uh, five countries internationally as well. So, you know, that brings up a really interesting question that I've, I've talked to a lot of other distillers and brewers and people about. Um, you have a physical location, right? right? You have a place where people can go and taste yep. and buy. Because yep. we actually make our product, unlike some um, companies out there that just contract a, a, a label and, and put out a brand. So we actually make the product and you come see that pr product being made. So you guys are truly distillers as opposed to branders and labelers. And there's right. a difference. Exactly. So uh, tell us a little bit about that difference. Who, are, what, what are these brand branders? Oh, do? there's there's a lot. I mean, the the tradition of blending, bottling, and just having a brand label. Um, mm -hmm. There are large companies that will either sell you bulk whiskey that's ready to go, and you just yeah. stick it in a bottle. Okay. Um, and that's obviously much cheaper than making it yourself. Um, or there are companies that um, simply contract a, an entire concept. You know, okay, here's my label design, here's a bottle design, and then they'll produce it like in a place in Michigan. And, and distribute it from there. And the company itself is really not much more than an office. So they don't actually create, they don't taste and develop the... the they might, yeah. So let's say if, if it's some kind of uh, exotic liqueur, um, they might have a recipe and they give that recipe then oh, and have some packaging company then puts it together. And then they contract distill, if you will. Right, exactly. Matt Hagerman's joined us in the podcast. Matt is a founder and creator of the Lost Rhino brewery and brand and Lost Rhino Retreat Associated Restaurants. Um, he's joined us, Scott Harris and Chris Suarez from Bear Chase and Catoctin Creek. Um, we were just talking with Scott about Catoctin Creek and how uh, the label has gone from something local and something that's distributed in Virginia under ABC stores and, and then Maryland and DC to 26 states and all over the country distribution. And you know, I was leading up to a question. Scott was telling us about how some people don't actually themselves make their own distilled product. And it's true with beer as well. Uh, they give a recipe to a big brewer or distiller, and then they label it, slap a label on it, and sell it as a brand. So, but Scott makes it himself. And I was leading up to the next piece, you know, Scott, so the, the profit, the business side of this, to me, it seems like, and also I've, with Lost Rhino too, uh, the experience there that when you distribute beyond the kind of zone of where your place is, where your mm -hmm. distillery is or your brewery is, that's when it really starts to become more profitable. You can leverage um, your brand a lot better. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm saying that is yeah, no, from the for, law for us, side. There's no real um, benefit to, I mean, profit benefit. We don't get more money by distributing it out of state. Um, in, in some cases, you know, there's other things like freight costs and things that we have to bear that... Um, so that the price is sort of uniform across the country. So if you want it in San Francisco, but you've got to ship it all the way over to San Francisco, you've got to factor in the freight cost. Because if you don't, then the distributor is going to factor it in, right? And then your price is going to go up. And when you're in San Francisco, a $50 bottle might be $60 over there. And maybe you don't want that to be the case. I see. So, but there's other reasons for wanting to be in San Francisco. In other words, you know, selling more volume, right? You right. Know, like maybe we're selling as much as we can sell in this area. And there's other markets clamoring for the product. And so um, those are the kinds of um, things that we consider when we go out there. Okay. So have you faced um, capacity challenges in, in, the, we, in the demand? We're constantly demand always sort of dealing with how much are we producing and how much are we um, selling, right? And so we have um, in our business, um, we definitely have a top end of our capacity, but we haven't reached it. Um, and so what Becky typically does, Becky is my chief distiller. She's the president of our company and she's the one that makes all the whiskey. 
And um, what she typically does is we have revenue forecasts for say the next year, right? And Becky usually tries to produce about 10% more than what we're revenue forecasting. Okay. And so we've got a big warehouse um, filled with barrels of whiskey, right? And so what that provides us, I'll use a software analogy, is it provides us a buffer, right? And we can draw down on that buffer when there's a surge, right? So when in 2018 in January, we added 10 states all at once, almost doubling our footprint. It was really hard on the system, right? Because there's all kinds of bottling and stuff that has to happen. Um, And what we were able to do is draw down on that reserve and then boost production on the back end to get it back up, you know, working harder than we normally do to get it back up and deal with that surge. So that gives us some flexibility in the model. What we learned going in, one of our first challenges going in as a naive, never before been a distiller, and this is a mistake made by lots and lots of distillers, is if you, if you understand distillation of whiskey, you have to age it, right? So you've got to sit on this product for years before you can sell it. And so most people who aren't infinitely wealthy just start going crazy, and we were doing it too, getting grain, making whiskey, putting it in the barn, getting grain, making whiskey, putting it in the barn. I see. And you and can go like, broke. I've got to store that you stuff can for go years broke. and age it. Is, it it yeah. is liquid money, right? You're taking yeah. money out of your bank, and you're putting it into the barn. And it's, it's fungible, but you have to sell it. Like, it's not easily fungible. And so um, we realized, holy crap, like we can't just put away infinite whiskey, you know, we're not rich enough to do that. And so you've right. got to balance the revenue, the sales with the, uh, with the amount you're producing. So would you say your engineering background um, totally. helped with that? Totally. And I both, both Becky and me. So Becky's background is in manufacturing engineering as a chemical engineer. Okay. So that is just like, that's the wheelhouse we're in. Like she's brilliant at what we do. And then my engineering background, um, I designed all of our computer systems and I was also a process engineer. So, you know, we, we're ISO nothing, but we use that knowledge. You're to, essentially ISO, the only ISO distillery. We are, I, I am proud to say ISO zero, right? Nothing right. like you don't have um, to do ISO. We don't 9, have 000. to do all that BS, yeah. but, um, but we use those, the best of those pr- practices Stand. to do things repeatably. We have work procedures, we have, you know, um, practices and policies and things like that. So Matt, it strikes me that some of the things that Scott was talking about in the distilling world, in the brewing world, so Lost Rhino has been around as about as long as Catoctin Creek. I think you both about ten years kind of started. We actually time, about yeah. the same time. That's we right. actually a long time ago we competed in a business plan competition. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that yeah. back. Yeah. You guys um, won. Yeah, well, yeah, it was, but it was, uh, <laughs> but we had to go up and give our little speech and everything, and it was fun. But we were all there together, actually, yeah. back in the. And I think today you two are the biggest breweries and distilleries, at least regionally, in Loudon for in sure. Loudon. For now, yeah, yeah, yeah for now, yeah. at least the locals. Not, yeah, locals. not talking yeah, yeah. AB InBev no, or like no, Jim right, Beam, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> but, but no. at least you know, owners and, and makers of your own product right. locally. So, so Matt Scott was talking about distribution and out of state. Uh, distribution issues and capacity issues. Uh, it strikes me that you've faced some of those same challenges in your business in brewing. Has that differed from kind of Matt's experience a little bit, or is it similar to it? From Scott's, yeah. Or Scott's. Yeah, so, I yeah, think sorry. that, um, uh, no, not really. I think that the, uh, the fundamentals of the economics are about the same because, you know, as you go farther and farther away from the, the brewery or the, the point of where it's made, um, you're starting to eat into um, the margins that you ultimately want to make. Right. And that gets lost in freight usually. And, and and what we've done is that, you know, we've had to work with um, uh, specific states on like where, what we want the price line to be, because like Scott said, like 
by the time the product gets to the shelf, it could be way out of where the price line needs to be. So can I ask both of you guys something? And and I'll come back to um, Chris in a second because mm-hmm. what I'd be interested in after I ask you this is whether or not you have advice for Bear Chase, eight months old, mm-hmm. right? And just starting to brew. But um, could you just off the top of my head, set up a contract distillery or an, another distribution point where the freight, where you could save on freight or is, is the, are the logistics and costs of doing that outweighed by it's, the value? It's a, it's a business case, right? Okay. I mean, so theoretically, yes, right? But if you're going to plop down a new brewery or a new distillery, you know, you're talking minimum at least $2 million, right? So it's like, okay, do, is that the smartest way I want to spend $2 million gotcha. in this business, Sure. right? Is my biggest challenge getting 30,000 bottles of whiskey to San Francisco. No, not right now. Right. You know, I can get, you know, but less in bottles. Five years, maybe you set up distribution point maybe. in California. But or if something. you look at right. it, it's actually not very common in the whiskey industry because okay. in the whiskey industry, um, it's all about sense of place, right? I mean, Jim Beam comes from Kentucky, right? right. It doesn't come oh, from Arkansas. It doesn't come from a California distillation center. I right? gotcha. There's a terroir associated with it. And usually with whiskey, a family story associated with it too. So, when we market this product, we are marketing. This is a Virginia whiskey made by the Harris family. In Virginia. In Virginia. Shipped in from Virginia. I got Shipped you. from Virginia. The grain comes from Virginia. And so that. That's the story. You lose that the flavor, story, right? The story. Our, our I biggest see. benefit. You would lose that if we started doing it in Seattle. So that's important. So I guess the other question I have is, is about spoilage. It seems like whiskey. Doesn't spoil. Doesn't spoil beer. Yeah, has we don't have that flexibility. Day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the same flexibility. Yeah. So that seems like an additional challenge. Yeah, and I think with uh, with breweries in general, um, I absolutely agree with that. I think that um, there is a place, um, you know, where the ultimate product comes from and the story that drives that. And I think, you know, especially with whiskeys, I think pe- people are willing to pay a premium for that story and where it comes from. They know it's coming from like you or Woodford Reserve, or they, they know where it's actually happening. And, and we try to, we try to emulate that with our, our brands as well. I think that, you know, we, we've attempted, um, uh, contract brewing, but, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, with that being said, because we've had capacity challenges over at the brewery. And, um, with that being said though, you know, I personally like to have my finger on the pulse of all the product that's going out the door. Right. And with having sort of an intermediate, somebody else that's producing, you don't necessarily have that same quality control that you would like to have normally that you have in-house. So so what we've done is uh, we tried contract brewing for a little bit, but then we pulled it back in-house because we really couldn't uh, quantify the the quality that we Couldn't manage the yeah, quality when it was out of your hands. Where, yeah, it was yeah. sort of out of our hands. And I didn't like that that factor at all. I was willing to sort of take the the beating on not having enough product and making sure that it was the right quality going out. So versus- would you say that the, the Tate, I guess the beer could be brewed. I know there's a big brewery in Richmond that is a California brand. I can't remember the name of it off the Stone. 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 Yeah. Stone IPA. So they're a California beer, but they very successfully set up another brewery for their California beer. And that's about what the label on the bottle and the taste of the beer in the bottle probably less so than the story. This is just what I'm taking away from Agreed. the way. Yeah. Is, is that, do you think that's, so is that where kind of distilling and brewing, maybe there's a dividing line in the, well, Stone in had the business a, sense? Stone before they came here though, had a, a very big or lots of distribution points already. So what they were trying to do is again, cut down their expenses because right. it was eating into their margins, you know, shipping it from California to here. So Sierra Nevada did the same thing. All, all those guys tried to 
try to jump to the East Coast really to, again, have control over all of the product that they have going out into the market. But they were also very well placed in the market before think, they came. Yeah, so. I think Yingling does it too. Yeah, I mean, Yingling, I think when yeah. you get to be one of the bigger sort of national brands, um, it's less about that story and more about just get like nobody Getting cares it out where to your people. Bud Light is made, right? Right, right. right. Which <laughs> right? is true. It's yeah. absolutely nobody true. cares. Yeah. About they do that. care if yeah. it has corn syrup, apparently. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Did you guys hear that last no two Thursdays ago, Miller filed suit? Yeah, and uh, it was interesting because they never say. Uh, Miller came out and said, there's no corn syrup in the bottle and the yeast eats the corn syrup and it's not high fructose corn syrup, right. but apparently the commercial gave the consuming public the impression that A, it was high fructose corn syrup and B, that it was in the bottle, right. mm-hmm. uh, even though they never said it. So right. their attorneys were very careful and apparently the FCC law, I think this is an interesting, we did a little blog on this. Mm-hmm. The FCC law is that what is the consumer impression? Sure. I walked away thinking there was corn syrup yeah. mm-hmm. in Miller. I was like, they put corn syrup I, I knew, in beer. I knew yeah. that it was a fermented thing, right? Yeah. So it's getting turned into alcohol. But but the 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 commercial was definitely trying to scare people. Like That's it was it. pure yeah. scare tactics. Oh, mm-hmm. nothing it else. Right. right. I mean, it right. sounds like it works. Right. They it was, oh my God, corn syrup. Yeah. Is there gluten in there too? You know, like, oh, geez. Yeah. Right, right. Right, right. No, it's, uh, yeah. So I think that um, with that being said, I think that, there's a lot of opportunity for like brands of ours to really help identify our markets and then grow from there, you know, and make sure that things like that don't get, you know, spun out of control of something right. that really isn't happening well, or so, is happening. So looking at Bear Chase, Bear Chase eight months in, yeah. right? And um, you guys, I, I know, just got your trademarks done. You have just gotten your liquor license. You you had your first tremendously huge gangbuster weekend recently. As we get into the yeah. spring, mm-hmm. this last weekend, I heard yeah. from Chris. Yeah. Congrats! Yeah. So, awesome. which is fantastic. So, what questions would you have for these two? I, I'll call you guys veterans, mm-hmm. veterans of the alcohol industry and distribution industry, and. I mean, you're a veteran of the hospitality <laughs> industry, and I yeah. used to work for Matt. I did, and uh, right? Matt's been a great resource. <laughs> so, uh, and so, I mean, I, I, that's what the great thing with the brewery industry as a whole, mm-hmm. um, especially in our area, it's such a family relationship. It's not um, his versus Miller versus Bud Light, and we're right. not going to do these commercials out there for him. Right. Um, I mean, we have our Facebook page that we ask, hey, we need the supplies, we need this and that, and so like other breweries will help out, and so it's a really a nice little community. And Matt's always been a big uh, supporter of me um, since uh, leaving with uh, leaving Los Rhino in January last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, um, and so, but I think like Matt and a few other ones have always been very supportive of it and um, being able to answer the questions we need to have mm-hmm. for him. But uh, the biggest thing is really, I mean, just like how do we just keep on top, say, in trends? I mean, there's so many beers out there: the New England mm-hmm. milkshake, this and that. And, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you kind of similar habit with the different flavors I see, like the honey and different things like that. How do we stay on top of the trends and how do we make it worthwhile? So we're not well, sometimes it's like, do you even want to stay on top of the trends? I, there was a in Vegas. I saw a new whiskey that was peanut butter flavored. And I was just like, <laughs> dear God. I mean, I get like cinnamon, right? Uh, I, I just, it's honey, like, if you I, want I a cocktail, it. make a damn cocktail. Right. But I don't, I don't want to buy it, but I get it. Yeah. But I don't get uh, what was the flavor? Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Yeah. I, I think like oh, I peanut do butter have, rum is actually not bad. Yeah. I, I do have my two cents on that, I think, because, you know, we've been, you know, asked like, oh, why aren't you putting out a hazy beer? Why aren't you putting out like, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And, yeah. And if you just look back over the last like 15 or 20 years, there's always a trend every about three, four, five years. There's a new trend that comes up, but then as quickly as it comes up, it goes away. So right? flash so, in the pan. Right. So yeah, these are really kind of is, like, you know, because yeah. like if you go back a little bit, there's 
there was the ice train, right? So yeah. everybody had to have an ice. Uh, and they're gone ice now. And red yeah. ice and like just goes on and on. And then, um, and then you move right out of that into a red. Everybody had to have a red, you know, and then that's gone. And then, you know, it just goes on and on. So and, it seems like that would, there would be a lot of business spin-up costs too, right? You've got to advertise your new trend. Oh, yeah. Just, mm-hmm. So staying 100%. true to the original product and right. the brand is getting a lot of your- by the TTP. Right, right. Oh, yeah. And, and the, the label stuff. I think sort of just keeping true to your brand and what you identify as a solid product and what you really want to showcase out there. Right. Instead of something you're trying to, jump on board with as quick as you can. But then by the time you're already on board, it's already like freaking gone. Right. So like, you can't know, chase so, the yeah, no, and right. you can't, you can't chase them. And I, I've just, I, I've never attempted it. Like, it's just too crazy because, you know, we have a variety of beers. We try to stay very true to like recipes we make. Right. You know, we're, we're one of the only brews in Virginia that still use open fermenters. And that's pretty much unheard of in, in my industry. So um, we try to stay true to the original recipes and making those products as, as well as we possibly can to introduce people to those products to say, gotcha. actually, there are baselines to all these beers, you know, opportunities for these um, beers. The, uh, and we do a similar thing. You know, we've been asked countless times, why do we only make rye? Why don't we make bourbon? Right. Why don't we make scotch? Right. And I always tell them scotch. Well, I'll make it as soon as I move to Scotland. Or bourbon you make <laughs> as soon as you move to Kentucky. Well, right? actually, you can make bourbon in any state in the U.S. as long okay. as it's made from American corn. Um, but the reason we make rye is because rye was Virginia's historic spirit. And we love that history. We love this product. And we just want to do one thing and just do it really, really well. And so um, that, uh, like you said, you know, I'm not making a fireball clone with cinnamon right, flavoring. Right, you know, right. probably, well, you don't need that's to. That's for the cocktail. Right. right. You know, yeah. I'd probably make a lot more money if I did, you know, but I'm sticking to my guns. You know, we right. have principles. We want to make, you know, something and just do it really well. Yeah. So let me, so you, you latched onto something about collaboration a second ago. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious about your impressions of this, all three of you. So I have, uh, as a lawyer, been involved with some brand wars uh, on behalf of, at least the older um, distilleries and breweries all over the United States mm-hmm. on both sides of the coin enforcing and defending. Um, so there are certainly conflicts between brands. I mean, I, I think we were saying earlier before the show that you can't pick a name like funky monkey banana beer. You know, somebody's already trademarked it or somebody's yeah, using right. it. Three breweries already have a beer with whatever name mm-hmm. you can come up with. You know, throw a mammal and a color on it, whatever it is. But somebody has it's that. It's an adjective and a mammal. So adjective and a mammal. Actually, you had an April Fool's joke, Matt, that I wanted to... Did you guys hear about this? Three it mammals. The three mammals. I My wife thought it was real too, but we saw it was a lost rhino, old ox, and... Ocelot. Um, Ocelot. Ocelot. Yep. And that the three of you were joining to become three mammals yep. brewing. Brewing. And... Yeah, and it was pretty ridiculous because we really took it to the next level. I don't know if that was a good thing or not, but um, we took it to the next level. So we had T-shirts made, banners, oh the whole thing. Like, so people were really well, like, bought into it. Well, you did a press release. It was yeah, in the, it was in the paper. I saw. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's April second today, yeah, so yeah. it would have been it would have been great if we could have had the show yesterday. And right, right. Announced right, like, right. well, three mammals is <laughs> yeah. back, and now we're going to be three mammals and some whiskey. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> yeah, that was that was three years ago, and I still have people come in the tasting room looking for the t-shirts. Like that's <laughs> that's, that's you, how long ago you like, should make it's them. Unbelievable. <laughs> Seems like it yeah, is. we were we were thinking about just for fun. We were custom um, ink. Yeah, we were all going to have um, you know a different color for each brewery, but then we would have the t-shirts available just because you know, people are ridiculous. So. <laughs> So it was just, uh, it was fun though. It was a lot of fun and a lot of people bought into it. So, uh, well, so I digressed about the brand war. So tell me about that. So this collaboration, it sounds like 
locally, you're getting help from Lost Rhino and you go to other breweries. I don't know if there are any other distilleries that you work with. There's, there's another distillery in Loudoun, um, Mount Defiance. They oh, make yeah, Mount Defiance. Sure, sure. Absinthe and stuff like that. And uh, we actually collaborate with them as well. So um, when we started, well, a few years ago, we were making a uh, an American agave spirit. You can't call it tequila, but it was right. an American agave spirit for Cochina down in Leesburg. And uh, and it was really neat and, you know, it was fun. And we're good friends with Jason and Rebecca who own it. Um, but it wasn't in our wheelhouse, right? It was like, right. we weren't making any money doing it. It was like, we can't spin up operations to support that when we're so busy doing this. And so we talked to Mount Defiance. We didn't want to leave Jason and Rebecca hanging. And so we talked to Mount Defiance, gave them the recipes, gave them all the artwork, mm -hmm. um, everything, and uh, trained them how to make it and then turned that product over to them. And now okay. they make it for them. So, um, you know, the restaurant is happy because they still get the product they want. And they're actually growing with that. Um, and, and we don't have to do it because we don't wow. have time. So it was really nice collaboration. And but so where does that line end though? So you collaborate with Lost Rhino or with Mount mm -hmm. Defiance, but Bear Republic or whatever stone I mean, we, or some other, you know, you, it's you, a little different in the distilling. There's not quite as many of us around. True. Um, and, um, and it's not quite as, um, everybody's not quite as collaborative as they are in the beer industry, um, in distilling. So you kind of have to build that relationship first. So, you know. Um, so that's, it's more person to person it, than, hey, we're both owner to owner. Distillers. Yeah, like, yeah. hey, you know, somebody, somebody just comes to me out of the blue asking me for a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, I'm like, man, I don't know you, you know. Yeah. But it's <laughs> like, if, if I've got a nice relationship with somebody, I'll, I'll bend heaven and earth for them. But uh, uh, so there's a lot of people who just want to take advantage. Um, and like, can I just have your business plan? And can I do all this? And it's like, no, you can't just do that. You know, there's, you yeah. got to do your own work, but I'm glad to give you advice and suppliers and things like that. So you've been asked that before. Oh, my, all the time. I really? Asked, I'm asked all the time. All really? The time. I don't, so who's yeah, asking you guys? Oh, we call them wannabes. Um, they come in weekly. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. We've had Where are people, they coming from? Just the like public. local guys? John like, hey. Yeah, usually it's guys who just love the dream and, oh man, we're going to do this. And they don't have a lick of money, experience, or work ethic. You yeah. Know? So it's like, and in the early days, you know, I would spend like six hours giving them a tour and walking them through this stuff. And then I realized these people aren't like 90% of them are never going to amount to anything. And I'm 99%. wasting, and I'm wasting my time. Right. Yeah. And so now we consult with people on a more professional basis. But I mean, we've had people come in and um, like go under our rope lines and go in the back and take pictures of equipment, um, steal um, uh, yeast packets out of the trash. Really? Um, all kinds of, all kinds of bad oh, behavior. Grief. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so I, it puts you in a defensive mode and I don't like to be that way, you know? So with, you know, different distilleries in Virginia and, and actually it's a lot easier to collaborate even outside of Virginia if they're, you know, four States away. Right. Um, you know, we have some very nice relationships with some other distillers. But it's the, the wannabe. So what about you, Matt? Have you uh, had a it's just like he said, it's constant. Like, you know, we do tours, you know, for the brewery. And you can definitely tell on the tour because it's the guy taking the pictures of the pumps and taking pictures of the clamp. Like, and and unfortunately, yeah, it's 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 all the 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 background work that it takes to put this together. Right, you're not going to be able to do it just replicating some. It's it's not how it works. It's just not the way it functions. And and again, it's the experience. It's these guys that are in some nine to five job somewhere and they just want to jump ship and they have no experience, but they want to go right into production. I'm like. 
guys, like there's a lot more to it than that. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot more deeply involved. I can give you my business plan, but that's not going to make you successful. Certainly, because the exercise of writing the business plan and thinking through those problems is what makes you successful. Yeah. After I've written it, I can throw it away, right? Right. Because it's all appearing. You might have to share it with investors. Yeah. Thank you to our sponsor today, Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig. Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig solves complex business problems with smart solutions, acting as advocates and advisors to their clients with diverse professional backgrounds from MBAs to PhDs to bankers to military officers, real-world experience for real-world problems. Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig doing better law. To find out more, visit www.dblawyers.com. So what was what did Bear Chase do? You guys are eight months old. How did you start up? Where, what, where did you go? I mean, it sounds like you went to Matt. Did you, well, did you we steal to, pictures of his stuff and um, try to like yeah, sneak, yeah. sneak in? And <laughs> yeah. There's so a little different than mine. Yeah, okay. yeah, so. uh, I mean, Bear Chase is a, I mean, a very different model than where Rhino is um, mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, Bear Chase, we're a farm brewery. And so we started out a little bit different. Um, so what is a farm brewery? How is that different from, a, is, I guess, Lost Rhino is a brewery brewery? Um, production, a production brewery. Correct. And so, what's the difference? What what makes a farm brewery special? We're we're currently growing right now. Um, we well, last summer we attempted to grow hops. We failed miserably. Um, but we will. We're attempting to. Uh, we have um, fruit trees in the ground right now, and we will also be replanting um, in the next few weeks. Hopefully, some more hops in the ground as well to try it okay. again. So we farm our, some of our own product. Is so what that's it. what makes a farm brewery. Yeah. Not you don't not goats or. Correct. You don't need the animal part. No, we don't need the animal part. It's just something that ingredients going into the um, into the beer. Okay. And so we um, we we started with uh, trying to do hops, and then in the fall we planted. Uh, we actually have forty two trees in the ground right now. So what your brewing process? How is that different from say lost rhinos? And I'm talking about kind of the business side of the brewery process, not like what vats do you have that are different, but. You know, if they're a production brewery and you're a farm brewery, is it is it volume? Is it quantity? Is it method? Um, probably a little bit of everything on okay. that one. Um, I mean, Matt is uh, his his brew house is two and a half times our size, um, okay. and so it's, he can produce a lot more out over there. Um, you're 25 rip barrel, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so we're a 10 barrel system. So we're. I mean, he he's able to do it. He has the um, distribution. We're not going after distribution right now. Um, most of our beer is going to be done in house. So you're um, venue focused. Correct. You're kind of selling through your venue. Yep. The experience um, is, I mean, you go out and we're, we're 33 acres. You have an amazing view of the entire Loudoun County area, cool. um, brand new tasting room and all that. So it's really a nice experience. You're by Bear's Den, right? Right across the street. Yep. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, right off beautiful. 601 there. Yeah. Um, and so Bear's Den looks over Clark County. We look over Loudoun County. And, um, That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, we hike up Bear's Den all the time. And then you come over and have a beer. It's get, great. Some, yeah. get some through hikers coming in to get hydration. Yeah. Right. Well, we are like four minutes sitting here in the studio from your brewery. Yep. I'll just <laughs> maybe five minutes we, away. We can go over there afterwards. So, yeah. right. Um, but uh, so other things that you guys would say to Bear Chase right now, it sounds like they're in a different space, but ultimately, are you looking to, to grow through distribution? Or are you looking to be more of an event center? Um, I wouldn't say event center, but definitely more um, venue oriented versus trying to go out. We will, we definitely want to have some distro down the mm-hmm. f- in the future, but we're we're so we're still new. We're trying to figure out our seasons and how we're going to do and what we're going to do and our core beers as well. Uh, we've identified a few of them, but we see, you know we still want to see what else comes out over the next few months. Um, so we're not really trying to get into that game just yet, but I mean, I would say, you know, down the road, absolutely. Um, be able to have something out there so we can have something going to fireworks, 
um, and so a little little bit out there. A little, gotcha. Um, so you can sell kegs into some of the local restaurants. The, uh, for our, for our perspective, and and I think there are some similarities in the beer world. You know, um, some after you get a certain measure of success, you know, distributors and places will start to come to you and want you, and and it's very. Um, feels very good to the ego to have that happen. And so you're very inclined to say yes. And, and my only advice would be use caution, you know, because once you're in some of those relationships, you're stuck in those relationships forever. Like right. forever. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's like, make sure like, you know, it's, it's like if some very beautiful woman comes up and wants to marry me, it's like, well, you know, might sound good at first, but she could be crazy. Right. And so you've got to basically like, you're, you've got to realize you're getting married here, you know, to this mm-hmm. distributor. And so you've got to really make sure how do they treat small guys? How do they deal with things? How do they pay? All those kinds of crazy things. Because, you know, we've gotten into some relationships that have later, you know, turned out to just be, you know, wah, wah. Yeah. Well, because with so, so it's interesting. Every state in this country has something it's called a three tier system. Are you guys all familiar with the, yeah, the, federal, the distribution? Federal law, right? Yeah. The federal law. DC actually is exempt. Oddly, which is kind of a neat thing that I know some people have taken advantage of. But tell us a little bit about your experience with this three-tier system, because that's where the distributor relationship comes in. And we're doing this podcast to share with all these people that are sneaking under your ropes or taking pictures yeah, of your sure. pumps and tanks. Sure. Hopefully, they'll listen to the podcast and mm-hmm. be like, you know, I shouldn't do that. That's not cool. Right. <laughs> not going to make any friends right. that way. Right. And they've given me really good advice. Mm-hmm. And so, what would your advice be about first? Uh, do Do any of you want to share with us? I mean. What do you, what is your view of that three tier system? How does it work? And then how do you find a good distributor? How do you, how do you do that? How do you pick somebody once you have all these people coming to you? I mean, we're, so for liquor, it's different than beer. Let's just start okay. with that right now. Sure. So everybody knows. Um, and um, we do have a three tier system. So it means basically the basic definition means that there's a separation of ownership between the manufacturer, the distributor and the retailers. Okay. So that's bars, restaurants, liquor stores. Right. Um, so that's the basic separation. And you're not allowed to be both. And not allowed to be, yeah, you couldn't be any two of the three. You can only be one. Right. Right. Tied house rules. Tied house rules, right. I can't send all my stuff to that place because I own it. It's a good term to Google for listeners. Tied house rules. Tied house rules. But it is... It is a complicated thing. We dealt with that with the very Reiner complicated. And, and different yeah. states yeah. have yeah. different levels of enforcement severity. You know, California and some states are really strict about it and other states are a little more lax. But um, anyway, in the, in the three-tier system, it's interesting because we actually operate in Europe as well, and Europe has no, no three-tier system. And so generally, most American distillers are like, oh, the three-tier system, it's constraining. It causes you know, me to have to do things I don't want to do, blah, 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 and I have to deal with distributors who I don't like, whatever. But there's a downside to not having it. In Europe, it's basically the wild, wild west. Anything goes, right? And so um, like in America, it's very controlled. If I make a, a, a sale to a distributor in like Missouri, like right. We have a relationship and it's exclusive and I can sell my product to him and they sell my product and nobody else is doing it for the most part. Um, and then I can work him. So I have like 26 customers, 26 states, 26 customers that I have to deal with. So there's a scalability thing there. I don't have to deal with 26,000 restaurants in the you U.S. You deal with 26 distributors. 26 distributors and, and I have a focal point and I can go visit them, you restaurants. know, you know, one every two a month, you know, and hit yeah. them all every year. Right. Um, so, so it's a scalability thing. In Europe, um, if I, for instance, they also have distributors and they have distributors that roughly align with countries. So there's a distributor for Germany, for Finland, for France, for UK, right? Different companies. And um, if I make a contract with, say, a German distributor, right? Right. And I, I tell them, okay, you can have my product, but only for Germany, right? Um, 
then, um, and then I'm going to go into Poland, for instance, and make a deal in Poland and say, look, I want to sell Catoctin Creek in Poland, and you can have my product only for Poland. And they're like, okay, great. We all handshake. We might even sign some papers. Then, but you might not. Then, mysteriously, that distributor, like he wasn't selling enough of one of your, your, your SKUs, right? And so mm-hmm. he's like, I got to get rid of this shit because I can't sell this. Um, so they'll sell it on the cheap at, at a loss even to some, you know, some little podunk distributor in Poland, right? And your stuff starts showing oh, up in Gdansk. Oh, no. So they start Gdansk. competing with your other distributor. Right. Your stuff starts showing up in Gdansk and your Polish distributor's like, hey, man. We had a deal. What the heck? And you're like, I didn't do it, you know. And so there's this gray market, oh boy. and stuff starts to go around. You'll find stuff showing up in Slovenia. And the U.S. distribution and, system present, prevents it. And that. the U.S. it's illegal to do so, yeah. and it's not in Europe. And so there's this gray market. So you do you do things where you try to, like, if I send it to Germany, I either put a sticker or I make a special label that says, you know, imported sure. by, you know, Have Distributing Company, so you can Tram in Germany, right? And then it's like, look, those bottles in Gdansk have your name on it. What happened? Well, how'd that happen? You weren't supposed to do that. Yeah, not for resale and other. Yeah, right, right. So, and that, and that's a partial that's solution. Really that, that, that whole example, by the way, it was not totally hypothetical. It wasn't us, but it was a different brand. A guy I was familiar with, a different uh, whiskey wow. brand. So, 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 because I only hear belly aching about the three tier system. That's yeah. a really good, useful story to kind of encourage people to. Well, the three tier system isn't that bad. I mean, we run into challenges. So Matt uh, has. Lost Rhino has a Lost Rhino retreat restaurant and there's brewing in the restaurant. And that was a challenge. Matt, do you want to talk about how we dealt with that or how how you dealt with that? Yeah, I mean, there were plenty of challenges because we were sort of the first to do it kind of thing, but there there's now tons of restaurants that do it. But basically what I had to do is I had to pull a brewing, federal brewing permit for both locations. Yeah. So I had one for the brewery and one for the restaurant. And then Basically, we did. We were able to do a um, inner transfer or a license to license transfer, which is you know how we sort of got around that. But we ultimately wound up going back to the distributors just for ease and everything like that because right. it really didn't make sense. Plus, we were brewing at the retreat already, so so um, uh, so we sort of share that, I guess, with our distributors, and then with um, with I can do that on some like. Some of our off products, like you know, little products that distributors ultimately don't want to make, but that's how we had to to sort of circumvent that. But but that's a very rare case, and that's the only time I can do. It's not there aren't any other alternatives. And then the other the other um, situation is that we actually have a county in Maryland, which it's the only county in the United States mm-hmm. that has a four tier system. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. Um, which so you really want to lose Montgomery, yeah. Yeah. Montgomery County. Yeah. Oh, shocking. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> not, not shocking. Yeah. Really. So, you know, we have to send it to Maryland. The Maryland sends it to the DLC is what they call it. And they, they're all taking profits along with that. That doesn't change. So by the time your beer gets to shelf in, in Montgomery County, it's 30 or, you know, 30, sometimes 40% more oh, than everywhere else. It's know? time to drive to PG County. It, it is yeah. really ridiculous <laughs> that the exists that system still exists over there. It's yeah. like a little mini Virginia ABC running yeah. in MoCo. Um, yeah, yeah. they've got to pay the people to do it, I guess. Yeah, That's what they're pretty amazing. In in um in the spirits world, it's a little bit more complicated. Um there are these little county regionalities that you have to deal with, but um they have of the um 50 states that we have in the US, they're roughly divided into thirds. 
Um, one third of the U.S. states are what are known as basically true free market states like Maryland, where it is absolutely free market. You can make whatever deals you can make with distributors. And if you sign contracts or not, you're bound by contract law. But, you know, in some cases you have a handshake agreement. If they don't work out, you can leave them. And if, okay. and if they don't like your product, they can drop you. Um, so it's true free market. And, and that, that's probably the best. It's model. all by contract. In other yeah. words, yeah. Yeah. it's all by contract, verbal or otherwise. Um, and then another third of the states are what's called control states, where it's a state government controlling the sale of liquor, either a little bit or a lot. So in Virginia, it's like complete Virginia. control. They run the liquor stores. It's like a Soviet grocery store. These are hourly employees that work for the state government, right? Um, it's That's why they look like Soviet liquor stores. Kind of, yeah, right. I, I give ABC credit because the stores have come a long way. They've really been modernizing and making them nice and all that. Um, you know, much more than they were 20 years ago when it was yeah. like, here's your liquor from behind the counter, like a pharmacy almost. Yeah. Um, but the, um, so those control states, then you're dealing with the state government. Now, the benefit of a control state is that they are usually extremely reliable. They pay on time. It's usually automated. That, so that's a good- Because the government's paying you for your liquor and collecting. Right. And you basically right. just sign up like a government contract and then you get auto deposits in your bank account. But there's limited shelf space and limited distribution that's everywhere. points. That's everywhere. Okay. That's everywhere. So, but a private contractor, you might sometimes have to chase payments, you know, and right. be like, look, you're 30 days over, you know, we need to get that money or else we're not going to ship again, you know, things like that. So you don't deal with that with control states. The third um, category are what we call franchise states. And that's almost everything that beer has to deal with, I think. But the franchise states, basically, it's like you can have a verbal agreement or not, but you are bound for life to that with that distributor yeah, unless, that is like beer. unless yeah, they sure. mutually agree to let you go, which they never do, right? Because they're going to keep you as a playing card that they can trade for somebody else down the road. Or someday you turn into Tito's, then they want to have the rights. So some of them are brand collectors and they, they have no intention of selling your product, even an ounce of it, right? We have a, a franchise state that we sell zero cases a month in over and over and over again. It's like, why did because you take us on? Because the distributor's holding on to you? Because they have no interest, right? Unless yeah. they get incentivized to, to sell your product. And that incentivized has dollar signs. Lots or of trade brand. for another brand, which, um, you know, I got caught up in that down in Richmond when Stone came in. Like, my brand was traded a couple of times and, you know, I had no control over it whatsoever. That's so. incredible. Yeah, yeah. So what so. would you say to Chris then about distributors lessons from this like the the brand trading like how, how would you pick your distributor yeah I how think would you vet them the not first to time we in go that? into a market i guess is the best thing to do is go out into the restaurant world and see how the restaurants are being um taken care of by the, the distributors i think that that's important because huh. you really get feedback from the ground of like What's actually going on in the market? Their sales guys are jerks, or no, we like them. They come all the time. Yeah, yeah, right. So you go talk to the restaurant owners, like you would go to Fireworks or something, yeah, and say, yeah. "Hey, how does you guys buy Lagunitas or right, Las Trino right, or right. who's their distributor and what?" Right. You, know? you also, you also would want to ask them, um, the distributor, before you make a relationship. What's your book? Let me see your book. What's your catalog of so you all don't the want things? To fly right? by night. Oh, yeah. if, if like for instance, we went to mega big distributor. You know, those guys aren't salespeople; they're order takers, right? right? So they're going in. How many cases of Grey Goose do you want today? You know, and, yeah. and this kind of stuff. They're not coming in and saying this was a handcrafted product and da 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 da. Spending ten minutes telling a story. So you got to have a salesman who knows how to sell instead of a salesman who's just going in like a Cisco food rep. You know, just okay. How many things of so olive oil do you want giant today? Book might not be right for your Absolutely. micro brew or for your a small, small company like small all of story. ours. Yeah. Right. And so if you see uh, a book that well, they've got a few tequilas and they got a couple nice rums 
they don't have a whole lot of whiskey here, that's a good fit for us, you know. So um, a small focused book, but not too small where they don't have any people on the streets either, you know. So, so next, next topic um, that I just kind of want to get a couple sound bites about um, is brands, like protecting your brand, your trademarks. Like, when do you do that? I know you just got your trademarks and we've been fighting and protecting your brands that your lawyers have been protecting yeah. them for years. And yeah. some of the battles have been vicious. Yeah. But what, what kind of strategy do you come up with? Um, so just to set the backdrop, the United States has a system where you can reserve a brand, a mark on the register ahead of time. And I know distilling, maybe not so much if you're not doing cinnamon whiskeys or coming up with kind of flash, I won't call it flash in the pan, but not coming up with new product all the time. Right. But brewing seems to me that all brewing people or breweries are coming up with new names, like just new beer names and new, like, we're going to do a Hefeweizen with cherries and, you know, mix it and, and age it in whiskey barrels. So there's good. a collaboration, by that. the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, sounds, I, sounds real good. We had, uh, do you guys know Dan Styles? Hmm? Yeah, so Dan brewed something at... Um, what was that? The the beach place. McDowell's? McDowell's. No, back in the day in whiskey barrels, some kind of like peach beer or something. And I took a new hire over there with one of my law partners, David Ludwig, you guys know. And uh, we had one glass and we were lit because they had just tapped it. They'd never tapped it before. And it was like 40% alcohol. Never had no idea. It tasted like peach juice, essentially. Yeah, yeah, right. So interesting collaboration. I don't know how yeah, yeah. completely legal it was to sell that, but I was pretty impressed with the product. I feel like that that should be we more actually, common. We actually have a very uh, in-depth um, barrel aging program oh, at do? the brewery. Yeah, yeah. So we we use whiskey barrels. We use wine barrels. We we it, it depends on because our barrels they were getting harder and harder to find. So a lot of them come out of Bowman's down in in Fredericksburg. But then we have a group down in Kentucky Kentucky that we work with that that helps us. Basically, is a contractor, but he goes out and. And finds the barrels for us, and then so do whiskey barrels I run have, out of uh, use? Yeah, we can only by law use them once by federal oh, law. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I have a bunch of barrels for you. If oh, you want awesome. barrels? Yeah, yeah. Come and see me. That's I will. Yeah. I'll make a price that's good for you. No, we actually have that. beer in, uh, in his barrels now. Oh, awesome! So, so yeah, we yeah. can only use barrels Look once at that, in Matt. whiskey. Just make right. your podcast business. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. The uh, whiskey law says that whiskey has to go into a new barrel every single time in the U.S., and so ninety percent of all scotch is aged in used American. And bourbon casks because of that because oh. scotland is a country with lots of whiskey yeah. and no trees i noticed i remember touring the bourbon distilleries and they use casks they buy from other people as well for bourbon yeah well they most bourbon all bourbon goes into a new casket first but there's always second finishes and oh, okay. things like that's that. What that is. So, right so, so the, you know and age. that's a big trend lately you know finish it in a rum cask people then think it was only in a rum cask no it's got to go into that fresh virgin cask at least okay. at, at the beginning and then that's how they get like the port wine finish yeah, right right okay. so you're finishing it it's like polishing yeah. you've got the basic you know statue made and you're just polishing it at the end have you had that belvini port wine finish mm. it's pretty I've good had everything yeah, yeah. pretty, pretty much <laughs> yeah so um so talking back about the brand war, so w what what comments or advice do you have? Bear Chase just got its brand, but if they, if you, you know, A, monitoring, should you be watching the trademark register? Should you be watching other users in California or in other states? Um, but what level, how do you approach those users? I mean, what, what have your experiences been? We, uh, I mean, absolutely, minimally, you have to trademark everything, right? right. I mean, you have to. Um, we, uh, um, had you know some skirmishes i would say i probably i'm not allowed to talk about the details of those skirmishes but 
But the, um, you know, what it always comes down to is somebody comes along, um, in our case, you know, a name that we trademarked and, um, and they want to use it, right? Because they like it. And it's like, you know, and in, in some cases they're doing something very similar to what you're doing. And in other cases, you know, they're not. And you have to decide how close is it to what you're doing? Is it going to dilute what you're, what you're doing? And, you know, the, the old ox um, Red Bull thing was ridiculous, right? That's, yeah. too, that's too far. Yeah. But, you know, if, if a... Too far by the, on the part of Red Bull. Right. Agreed. They, they over enforced. Totally agree. Right. Yeah. right. But it's on, great for old ox, though. Right. But no for, PR is bad for PR us, sometimes. Uh, for us, right. like if somebody comes along and they're making a distilled spirit, right? Mm-hmm. That's the same class, the same category. Uh, uh, is what we're doing. Like there's a Catoctin Creek fly rod. You know, they make fishing poles. I don't care about that. Right, that makes Custom sense. Custom motorcycles, I don't care about that, right? That's a regional thing. But um, if they're making whiskey, they can't use it. Catoctin beer, they probably couldn't use it either, right? Right, Because right. so, it's this consumer. And, and, and the thought right. is that they, people have the perception that they are the same thing as you and they're getting benefit from what the work you've done, right? And so right. You, you, can't, you can't let them do that. Or that they're going to pr- dilute and harm your brand exactly. by selling an inferior right. product. So, so, so you know, um, the, the, most cases we send a cease and desist and they desist. Um, and we had one that went to, to, to court and it got ugly and, uh, and then we settled and, you know, spent a lot of money that we wish we hadn't spent. But you um, still have your brand. But we still have a brand and we, you know, we won in that case, you know, and it all comes down to, you know, we had the trademark, you know, you can't use it, you know, it's yeah. ours. And so that, so Matt, you've had that same uh, experience. Plenty of times. A lot of times, yeah. right? Almost awesome. monthly for yeah, 10 it's years. pretty much monthly. Yeah. Um, so, so question about that. You, you're collaborative with a lot of breweries. You're helping Bear Chase. I know you've helped other breweries start and continue. Um, how do you deal with infringers? What's your strategy for when you see somebody starts a brewery in, say, Delaware or Wyoming, and they're like, hey, we're uh, faceplant um, stout, and you're a faceplant IPA, and they just start it, and they don't say anything to you. What, what's your initial, what do you do for Well, I mean, like I said, we are collaborative in nature. So I have plenty of times like sent out a a letter, a nice letter, just saying, hey, guys, you know, you're on the radar. We need to see if we can work something out, run through your production and then be done with it. You know, more of that stance instead of just jumping right in, because for me, there's too many. So so it it would just it would exhaust all of our, our funding of like lawyers are just too expensive. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) indeed. (laughs) But you try the collaborative approach. Yeah, we try the collaborative approach, but usually, unfortunately, um, I'll either not get a response or they'll just blow me off, whatever. You'll have to get a lawyer, send a letter. Yeah. So then, and then we sort of move into the next stage. We send a lawyer and then, um, and then if we don't get any traction there and they continue, then we sort of move into the, the next phase. So it's, it's, uh, it's been challenging to say the least because, We've been around for a long time and I, you know, we've had 4,000 breweries come on board since I've been in operations. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and unfortunately these guys don't even do a, or they do a quick Google search and they're like, yeah, uh, they're not going to. Or gonna. they just say, we're going to be different enough or we're far away enough. Right, right, right. We really like the brand and we just want to use it. Right. Right. They already have it. Right. I think we, there have even been cases that I've seen with some breweries where the other brand said, well, you guys are just so successful and we, we'd like to use part of your name because it'll help us get started. <laughs> That's a great case Which in court. Is, yeah. Right. yeah. It's a good case for great. you to win. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Right. So, so opposite problem, uh, getting a letter from somebody that says, Hey, you're using a brand that we have a problem with. Has that happened before um, to you guys or 
No. So, so, it's, so, the, so I guess the takeaway is be on the front end. Get your trademarks right. and be the enforcer, not the enforcer. Right. If you're starting a new brewery, do your due diligence and get your trademarks exactly. first. Because I think some of that process bakes in reviewing and making sure you're not using anybody else's mark and you're not going to get that letter and spend all that money to change your brand. We, we had a, so, uh, a local restaurant that uh, for a brief time, they wanted us to, to do a private label for their restaurant. And I won't say which restaurant. Um, great, great place, great guys. But um, they had a concept and they wanted to call it something loco for Loudoun County. Uh-huh. And it's like, you know, for loco is a, is a beverage, right? Like, right. like, no, you can't use uh-huh. loco. And, and I think that basically killed it for me. They were really intent on calling this product like loco something. And I was like, well, we, you know, we're going to have to own it. We're going to have to trademark it. And, and you're and gonna that's never going to, that's letter. never going to yeah. happen. Right. It's, I mean, we were going to put out a product called Grey Ghost at one time, right? And that's right. too close to Grey Goose, right? Grey Ghost is the nickname for John Mosby. And, yeah. But, but I, it's, it's too close. It's, it's too close. But Grey Goose, so that's the other thing that's interesting, I think, with that comment. If, if, if Grey Goose was a small private label vodka in, you know, Oregon or something mm-hmm. like that, you could probably be Grey Ghost and fight them. But Grey Goose has more money than God. Yeah, exactly. And they're going to fight you so even if got, they're not on gotta, the side of right. Yeah, so that's another balance. More factor. than just it's what it should be or what should be allowed or whatever. It's like also practical economics, right? Yeah. There's a lot of that, I think, in, in every industry. But it, when the margins are tight in the distilling and brewing industry, right. probably top. So, um, so I want to take a quick, quick second with each of you to plug. And Chris, if you want to go first, you, can you tell us about Bear Chase? Plug what, what products you're doing, what makes it special? And, uh, you know, just want to share that with the podcasting audience who might drive by the western part of Loudoun County or be at Dulles Airport and want to take a break. Absolutely. Um, so we're, uh, we're eight months old. We opened last August. Um, official grand opening was September of last year. Um, and we're a 35-acre farm brewery um, right on the very far, farthest western Loudoun County we could possibly go. Um, if you, as soon as you're on the road to our, our uh you're, brewery. you're on the top of a mountain, aren't we you? We are, yeah. We're yeah, um, right off of uh, Route 601 and Blue Ridge Mountain Road, right down the street from FEMA. And so we get a lot of uh, that uh, those individuals coming up and down. Secret and the hikers, people? Secret people, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then, uh, Can't know what's up there. We, we don't. We stopped asking, too. It was easier. Because they tell um, you not to ask. <laughs> yeah. I think if you ask too many times, they have to report you. Do the Blackhawks fly over your brewery, too? I was told I'm not allowed to talk about that anymore. They fly right <laughs> up. They fly within 10 feet of this place. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so we're, uh, we have right now, we have 16 beers on tap. Um, we're, uh, we've identified about six or seven core beers that we want to have. Um, we are traditional beers. We um, don't, we're not really the ones that have all that funky, weird stuff in the beer. We really like to try traditional. Um, one of our best sellers is a High Point Hellas. Um, High Point Hellas is a light, crisp, easy drinking lager. Um, and then also we have Mr. Blonde and Mr. Pink, which is a blonde ale and a um, cherry blonde ale. Did you trademark the labels yet? I will have to get back to you on that one. We will have to, do, we'll have to take <laughs> care of that. Okay. So, um, Matt, you want to tell us a little bit about Lost Rhino? And I, I know Lost Rhino is party central, band yeah. central. You're on the trail. Yeah. The, uh, well, like I said, we've, we've been around for a while. Um, we're very fortunate to sort of be in the, the first brewery into Loudoun County after post Old Dominion, but um, we're very fortunate to pick up the equipment from, from Old Dominion. So our brew house actually has been brewing beer since 1989. So we've been very fortunate to, to be able to sort of grow that, um, grow that You were that at market. Old Dominion before, right? Yeah, I was That's there for eight years. Yeah. yeah. Went to school originally for mechanical engineering and 
and got sucked into to brewing. So all these engineers, um, yeah, know, yeah, they no, seem to be the success. Engineering sucks. Nobody wants to stay there. Yeah, but like, it seems yeah. like you can transition into well, it's a the career. drafting behind the table. I'm like, this is not what I wanted to like. You know, <laughs> like I love doing it, but like I I couldn't do that. But um, yeah, so. We've been, uh, we're, we have our eight year anniversary coming up. So we're uh, pretty excited about that in a couple of months, actually. Um, and uh, Lost Rhino, we're a production brewery, but we have a, we have a, uh, you know, a full scale tasting room and we have a, uh, a kitchen built into it. So um, come there, have pretzels. We also have um, not, it was by accident. So I have, I have a pincade now, which I didn't think was going to be a thing, what but is it that? is a thing. Um, a pincade is a collection of pinball machines. Oh, and um, that's so we, awesome! Yeah, so we have yeah. nine now, and uh, um, it's a lot of fun. People love coming out and playing it. There's leagues. There's it's. I had no idea it even existed wow. anymore, frankly, because it's one of those things where you can't yeah. have it at home usually. Like, yeah, and everybody has the consoles, but like they don't have that. So, so that's a lot of fun. We do, uh, you know, we do bands on on Fridays and Saturdays. We do trivia. So what's your lead product? What's your famous beers? Uh, what are yeah, you? so uh, uh, Faceplant accounts for about 70% all my production. Okay. Um, so it's IPA? Faceplant IPA. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we are traditional as well. So we have a, a, a Keller Hefeweizen. So it's made in the traditional German way in open fermentation. The whole deal that just rolled out. And um, we get a new release tomorrow, which is uh, an Imperial Red that Ooh. is called Matt's West Coast Refuge. That was mine. Um, I actually brew beer too, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. It sounds real scary, but I do it and um um not as often as I would like to, but and then we have uh we have vinyl night, which has become real popular Huge, too. Yeah. So vinyl nights on Tuesdays. Wanna try and, that, that yeah, Imperial Red though. Yeah, the Imperial I, I Red. It really that. it really turned out very nice. Very um, cool. I'm very happy with it. A little higher on the alcohol side, but um very fortunate to have it. So uh, yes, we're we're a traditional brewery, and like I said, we, um, um, you know, Bear Chase has the the million dollar views. I've got the one dollar view of my parking lot. But, but you posted uh, a new post. You have your upgrade. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I did it as a fun. It was a fun. So you, you guys did see. Yeah, we did a little April Fool's joke. So um, yesterday, because you know we hear like obviously they're like yeah we're going out for the view and everything. I'm like well look at our view guys like got all the cars and the Comcast trucks trying to drive people. You know like. It's just so um, we, I have a very good Photoshop guy in house, like very <laughs> scary good. And uh, he took some of the pictures, the views up there and put them in our tasting room. So if my kids want to go to college, do you think he could put their heads on a <laughs> row and play soccer? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but he's just, he's really good at what he does. So anyway, so it was a lot of fun just to, to, to very you cool. know, collaborate with the community. And again, I, I do want to go back to a quick remark. Uh, the first beer that I had on before I couldn't even carry beer because we do support the industry is um, uh, was Port City. So okay. Port City was my, you know, direct competition. But yeah. I put them on, you know, and then I just had fair winds on last week. So you, you put know. them on tap in your room. Yeah, I put them I on tap you. in the tasting and room. Port because- City is, is going to be here today with us. We're probably yeah. going to interview uh, Mr. Butcher yep. separately when he shows up. He's yeah, running so a little Bill's late. Bill's beer was the first beer that we had on at the brewery. Fantastic. So, yeah. So I think that, you know, and then, um, you know, we, we try to do that. We did it with House Six. Um, we did it with uh, Fairwinds most recently. So we try to keep a few lines open just to show that we support the community as a whole. That's great. Ultimately, they have to have a good experience, whether they're 
at our facility, at your facility, like anywhere they go. Well, so you're going to get some kegs, I think, from Scott, and you're going to have Bear Chase on tap yep, soon yep. No. Yeah, as a promotional thing. Yeah, no, and, and we do it. So it's a lot of fun. It makes yeah. it fun. So. Scott, do you want to tell us about Catoctin Creek and what why why people want to come and what your product yeah so showcase. when becky and i started the company we wanted to make a type of uh, whiskey that was for the most part forgotten about um most people don't realize you know in virginia as one of the original colonies um after the revolutionary war you know um rye whiskey was the predominant spirit uh, before the revolutionary war we were all brits and so everybody was drinking rum but after the war the brits got kind of pissed off with us for having a war with them and they cut off the supply of sugar and rum to us. And so Americans had to look in, inward for their spiritus beverages. Yeah. And uh, so what we had was lots and lots of land. We had lots and lots of um, grain. And the grain that was predominant in this area was not corn, but rye. So rye was growing in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, all the way up into Quebec. And uh, it was this northern east coast rye. Sweeter, right? Um, it's sweet. It's, yep. it's not as sweet as wheat, um, mm -hmm. but it has a little bit of a spicy taste to it. Um, and uh, bourbon comes along much later as the as Americans start to settle into what's the Ohio River Valley and Kentucky so and all original. that stuff. What rye we need to is get the that original? Message out. Absolutely, that's what rye we're doing. Rye is the original that's American. That's what we're doing. All right. Right. So right. Becky and the I, nobody knew American that. Right? People are still yeah. learning that, and it's like, why do we make rye whiskey? Because that's what was made in the 1700s in this state. This is what's important here. Um, and people say, why don't you make bourbon? It's like, well, if I wanted to, I'd move to Kentucky. You know, that wasn't regionally important here. There's nothing that prevents me from doing it, right. but we want to tell this story. And so when we go to places, like I was in Vegas and I was at liquor stores in Vegas and I'm like, and I present my bottle and I say, this is a Virginia rye. And they're like, that's odd. What's that? You know, I, I know what Kentucky bourbon is, but what's a Virginia rye? And I say, well, that means it was made from grain in this area. And it was distilled in a pot still. And those are two very important things that make this very unique in, in, in that space. And, and then they taste it and they're like, oh, wow, this is really good. It tastes amazing, you know? And so, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize George Washington, our president, first president, was a distiller at Mount Vernon. And I've he been was, in his distillery. Yep, Have you been? He was, reconstructed I've, it. I've distilled there. So it's fantastic. Becky. Yeah. Um, he was the largest commercial distiller in his lifetime. And so distilling... You know, the father of our country was a distiller, and that's an important message. He was an engineering distiller because I remember he brought that special stone from France or something, the giant, right? The millstone. The yeah. millstone, yeah. 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 Put a lot of money he, into his uh, distilling. He was a very smart guy. He had some yeah. very unique things. Um, he, he built his distillery below the level of um, the river, and then he piped the river in for the cooling water into his yeah. uh, distillery. So it's brilliant. It's free water. Like, it's so yeah. wonderful. Um, but... Uh, so, you know, this rye whiskey, basically, it's a, it's a single barrel rye made from local grain, um, lovingly pot stilled. So um, most distilleries in America are column stills, which is essentially a refinery process that's run automatically 24-7, um, but not us. We're a batch process. We are um, obstinately inefficient, we like to say. You know, Becky tastes every spirit every five minutes coming off the still and wow. babies it through the system so there's an enormous amount of care that so goes into five, making this pretty trashed yeah <laughs> no, <laughs> no, her, her liver is like this big <laughs> but uh you know and then we age it in these barrels for a number of years and then and then hand taste the barrels to make sure they're ready to be bottled and then and then bottle it so that's uh you know the amount of care that goes into these products so so for today i want to thank scott and matt and Chris for joining us, Catoctin Creek, Lost Rhino, and Bear Chase, and the products that we're, we want 
everybody remembers American Rye Whiskey from Catoctin Creek and the uh, Faceplant IPA from Lost Rhino and then Bear Chases Hellas. Yep. Is that right? Yep. All right. So everybody go to these places. The venues are actually fantastic. Even Matt's parking lot. It's a fun place. <laughs> mm-hmm. The pinball machines, it's, a, it's actually a party central. Beautiful views at Bear Chase. And then Catoctin Creek, my feeling when you're there is that it feels very authentic. Feels it's in Old Town, Percival, Virginia. Very worth visiting. Um, thanks, guys, for coming. Appreciate it. And uh, when we, when Mr. Butcher, when Bill joins us, we'll, we'll edit him in and ask him some of the same stuff. But thanks for coming out. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers. And thanks again to Matt Suarez of Bear Chase Brewery, Matthew Hagerman of Lost Rhino Brewing, and Scott Harris from Catoctin Creek Distillery. We had a, a boozy show with great boozy guests. We learned a lot today. Please download this podcast from wherever get your podcasts, the other episodes on iTunes podcasts or the Android Google Play Store. Find us on YouTube at Black Letter Podcast. And finally, don't forget to visit our website at Black Letter Studio to see our other great shows, videos, and accompanying material. Thanks again for joining us.